Hello, everyone. This has been Kelly with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy podcast. Today, I'm going to take a break from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro, and I'm actually going to talk about moral arguments for Christianity. Um, I will get back to looking at Scazzaro's book, but I thought I would just take a break so that uh, people would get a little variety here. So, um, I actually just took a class uh, to finish out my Master's in Divinity on. Um, contemporary apologetics in our current culture and some of the ideas that we need to be aware of um, within the last, you know, 10 years of doing apologetics. Um, a lot of people who who look at apologetics and they want to read something on apologetics tend to look at some dated information. They may be like, oh, I'm going to read a, a book by C.S. Lewis or something like that. And, you know, that's, that's just dated information. Uh, there, there are better arguments out there now. Um, within the last 10 years. So I'm going to talk about moral apologetics for Christianity, and I'm specifically going to be looking at an abductive moral argument. Now, there are many different types of moral arguments, and they relate to different types of logic that is used in philosophy. So, for example, there is a, a deductive moral argument, and that uses deductive reasoning. And what I mean by that, deductive reasoning is where the, the premises of an argument demand or necessitate the conclusion. So, for example, this is if you have ever taken any kind of class in, in logic, you've probably even heard this before just through listening to anything. There's, there's a little argument that goes, uh, premise one is all men are mortal. All right, so that, that's our premise. Um, our second premise is, Socrates is a man. And then the conclusion is, therefore, Socrates is mortal. So all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. We have two premises here. All men are mortal and Socrates is a man. So that necessitates our conclusion. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So there is actually a deductive moral argument and it goes it goes something like this if objective moral standards exist then god exists objective moral standards do exist therefore god exists so premise 1 if objective moral standards exist then god exists premise 2 objective morals do exist and then the conclusion therefore god exists and so there are different ways to attack uh, this kind of argument, uh, you could say, well, there are no such thing as objective moral values or morals. There are, and they, you could just argue there is no such thing as God and um, still believe in objective morality. There are people who do that, actually. So there's there's really three kind of positions on there. There would be the more the theist position, which would say this is a good argument. There would be the um, atheist uh, position that um, is... Um, that approves of objective morality, who would reject this kind of argument. They would say that our objective morals are not grounded in God, they're grounded in something else. And then there would be the third position of an atheist who doesn't believe in objective morality, who would just throw out this kind of uh, argument altogether. Now, that's a deductive argument. Very simple. They're used all the time. Uh, usually, though, most philosophy and apologetics aren't done in a deductive manner today. There are also what we would call 
inductive arguments. And this is where the premises of the argument indicate a high probability that the conclusion is true. So, for example, premise one, objective morality indicates that there is a God. Premise two, it is more likely than not that morality is objective. Conclusion, because it is more likely that morality is objective, then it is appropriate to believe such morality indicates the existence of God. This is not a good argument. This is just one I made up off the top of my head. There are inductive moral arguments out there. Uh, they are they can be very complicated and difficult to understand. But the, the idea that you want to take away from it is that the premises indicate a higher probability that the conclusion is more true than not. Now, there is a third kind of logic that most people just are not, and there are other kinds of logic too, but there's a, there's a third type of argument that most people are never familiar with. You know, I've, I've talked to other guys in my church who have um, graduate degrees, they have MDivs, uh, they've, they've never heard of this type of argument before. Uh, you know, my wife is educated and um, she's educated in the humanities and she had never heard of this type of argument. I have a friend who is a, a priest, and when I was talking to him about the paper I was writing for this class and describing the argument, he had never heard of anything like this. So this is called abductive reasoning. And abductive arguments, they what they do is they infer the truthfulness. So let's say you're arguing as a Christian. An abductive argument infers the truthfulness of Christianity by exhausting the explanatory powers of other worldviews when it comes to explaining, um, for example, morality. So uh, this was my class that I took recently. This is what we studied in apologetics. We studied abductive moral arguments based on just how other worldviews exhaust their explanatory power and Christianity is the uh, best explanation for a certain moral property. Now, I'm going to be using those words, moral properties. Um, and what I mean by that, as an example, um, a moral property is something like moral obligation. Why do we feel morally obligated to perform certain moral activities? So an obligation is a property of morality. And so that's when I say moral properties, that I, that's what I mean. There are other properties of morality that I'm going to talk to you about today, but obligation is just one of them. So what an abductive argument does is it looks at explanations for something like moral obligation from a naturalist or a, a secularist worldview to find the problems in those explanations and see if Christianity offers a better explanation. And if it does, we can infer the truthfulness of Christianity and say it has a better explanation for moral obligation. So I'm going to, today, on here, I'm going to offer an abductive moral argument by comparing naturalism and Christianity. I'm going to give a satisfactory explanation of these moral properties. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show how naturalism fails in ex explanatory power for different moral properties. Because I believe naturalism just does not give a satisfactory answer. And so I will infer the truthfulness 
of Christianity based on the failure of naturalism. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a letter I wrote as an assignment for this class. Um, it was an exercise that we did in this class. It was actually my last assignment where the professor really wanted us to practice using this kind of argument in, in very practical, plain language that we could share with people in our churches um, so that we could use, use this practically. Um, I, I wrote, before this, I wrote a very technical, um, longer paper on this kind of argument. And honestly, because even people who are educated in the same kind of field that I am had never heard of it before, I didn't want to read the technical paper to you. I thought it would just be way, some of it's way beyond me, even though I did very well on the paper. Um, I only really messed up in, in one small area. But um, using this letter, we wrote this letter to a friend, and I didn't. We didn't have to write to a real person. I just wrote it to John, as in John Doe. But uh, we wrote a very applicable letter to a friend, and so I actually received a, a perfect grade on this assignment. And so I wanted to share this with you, and so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read that letter to you. So let me pull it up here real quick. And it says, Dear John, as I have said in our previous correspondence, I'm going to demonstrate a different type of argument that infers the truthfulness of Christian theism by exhausting the explanatory power of your worldview of naturalism when explaining moral properties. What will be shown is that Christianity is a better explanation of these moral properties than naturalism. This will not certainly prove that Christianity is right or true, but it will demonstrate that naturalism is not up to the task of fully explaining these moral properties. What are moral properties? They are different aspects of our moral consciousness that you undoubtedly use and are aware of, even if you are not intimately familiar with them. There are numerous moral properties, and they can be broken down in many ways, but our conversation will mainly focus on four. Moral facts, moral knowledge, moral transformation, and moral rationality. These are four different aspects or properties of any system of ethics that need explanation. When I say they need explanation, I mean they need to be grounded or justified by something. Moral facts simply mean that moral values and obligations we have. So moral facts are, are those, I was just talking about obligations. Uh, moral facts are values and obligations. Um, obviously, values are what you value and obligations are what you morally feel obligated to do. Moral knowledge is how we come to know our moral facts. How do we know our values and obligations? Moral transformation is the common human tendency to always want to be or do better. Why do humans have this moral yearning to be better? Lastly, moral rationality is what the rational or is the rational foundation for our moral properties. Where does our moral reasoning come from? What I want to demonstrate to you is how naturalism has weaker explanations for these moral properties than Christian theism. This will infer the truthfulness uh, of Christianity over naturalism. And so again, we're talking, this does not give us certainty 
that Christianity is true, but it's showing that we have a better explanation of morality than naturalism. So again, we're talking about moral facts, which are obligations and values. Everybody feels moral obligations and moral values. We are talking about moral knowledge. How do we know our moral facts? How do they come to us? Uh, we are talking about moral transformation, where we want to become better or we feel this need to do better morally. Where does that come from? And lastly, we'll talk about moral rationality. You know, what is the rational grounding uh, for our morality? And so that, that one's a little harder to explain, but I'll better explain it in the, uh, in the paragraph where I deal with it. So I continue. I already said that moral facts primarily deal with what we morally value and feel obligated, obligated to accomplish. By a naturalistic account, we value what we value and follow through with our moral obligations because such values and obligations have largely been determined through an evolutionary process for the purpose of the survival of our species. However, this explanation has many difficulties. There are values and obligations that people hold that do not outright contribute to the survival of the species in a naturalistic sense. For example, supposing there was a married couple where the wife was pregnant and they find that the baby has some genetic defects that will cause extreme disability in life with little mental cognition. However, the couple has the couple, as many other couples do when it comes to their own children, feel obligated not to terminate their child's life in the womb and want to love this child as best they can because they value the child's life. If naturalism were the best explanation for our moral values and obligations, then it would be certain that this couple fails in holding up naturalistic values and obligations. Yet we know from experience that this couple is certainly not the only couple who feels this way. In fact, there are many couples who go through a similar experience and choose to love and raise their children, although their children will have extreme disability. What accounts for this divergence in moral value and obligation that is contrary to a naturalistic explanation? There must be something beyond naturalistic explanations. Another moral property is moral knowledge. A naturalistic explanation for moral knowledge is that we have gathered this kind of knowledge over a long period of time through the evolution of our species, and this knowledge has been passed down not only by oral tradition, but also genetically. This explanation suffers as did the, fir the one for moral facts. The trouble with a naturalistic explanation for moral knowledge is that it assumes that time and observation will automatically lead to moral excellence. However, this explanation presupposes the morality of the human species is getting better over time. This type of thinking is flawed for two reasons. The first is that a survey of history will show that human immorality has remained constant as humanity is just as capable of hideous immoral deeds now as it was 3,000 years ago in recorded history. The second reason is that an idea of naturalistic moral betterment for the survival of the species implies that humanity at one time was capable of survival 
due to a lower understanding of morality. What good reason do we have to believe that human species could survive at a lower moral understanding? The odds would have been insurmountable for the survival of the species if moral knowledge was a product of naturalistic processes. And so that's, that's a little difficult to understand, but yes, we, we can't regress moral knowledge back and say we've grown over, you know, grown to our moral understanding now because, well, in order to survive in those very, very primordial or early stages of humanity, then we would have had to have some kind of moral knowledge for survival. We couldn't just have started as a blank slate. And so that, that's the problem there. Continuing, a third moral property is a moral transformation. What compels people tr to traverse the moral gap of where they are right now and where they want to be morally someday? A naturalistic explanation of moral transformation would be that human instinct built up over numerous years of evolution has compelled people to yearn for moral transformation for the survival of the species. Are you getting a little bit of a, a theme here? <laughs> survival of the species? The major flaw with this type of thinking is that moral transformation cannot be projected into the past as an infinite regress. In fact, way back in the recesses of time to the first humans, it may have been more appropriate to act immorally than through murdering rival humans or killing unwanted children. So the point there is it, would, it may have been better for human survival you know, way, way back for to do what we would consider immoral today. And so where's, how is that built up over time? It's just really difficult to understand. What incentive or obligation does this kind of person have for traversing the moral gap if his grounding for morality is base survival? There can be no account of where this instinct for moral transformation came from except for a long period of time. However, there is no good reason to believe humans would suddenly prefer altruistic morality for the survival of the species when it is more than clear that survival as a common good may involve what is currently considered immoral. Survival as the moral grounding for moral transformation only confuses what humans have considered moral and immoral over the history of the species and provides no compelling reason to traverse the moral gap. The last moral property I want to discuss is moral rationality. What accounts for our moral reasoning and how to think about morality? A naturalistic explanation would be that our ability to reason about morality has been developed over time through natural observation. The problem with an explanation like this is that observation requires some form of rationality or moral reasoning tied to value or valuing good observation. Valuing a good outcome is a precondition for observing moral behavior for advantageous outcomes in the survival of the species. So what I'm saying there is that observation is not a good enough foundation to, to continually observe what is morally right and then build that up in a species over time because there is some kind of precondition or precognitive or whatever you want to call it 
some kind of value that upholds what is good in our observations. Observation is not the bedrock of deciding what is good or evil. It is some kind of precondition that is built into observation. So that, that's a little tough to understand, but that, that's a major flaw for naturalism. So this precondition assumes humans can make value judgments using reasoning before observing good moral outcomes. It is impossible to explain rationally by something that requires rationality. Rational observation requires previous rationality. And so this is this is um this was a major blow to um naturalism in the 20th century. Yeah, C.S. Lewis actually uncovered this uh kind of argument in or he made he more popularized it in um, his book Miracles in the third chapter where he talked about the problem of naturalism and he talked about how there has to be some kind of rationality or reasoning that precedes our kind of chemical mechanical determined processes in naturalism because anything that we value within the naturalistic framework has to have some kind of precondition for that value it can't just be built up over time or else it would just be chaos so that's that's uh, if you want to learn more about that you want to learn uh, maybe a, a better argument than what i present um lewis's miracles does that it, it's not about morality it's more about miracles and naturalism, but it's along the same lines. I, I use that argument here to talk about moral rationality. So uh, finishing up, all these objections to the differing explanations naturalism provides for moral properties demonstrate that naturalism does not and cannot offer an explanation that meets all the demands of the moral properties listed above. However, Christian theism has better explaining power for all of the above properties compared to naturalism. Christian theism grounds moral facts in the person of God. Humans morally value certain things because God values those same things. God impresses on human persons the value so that we may understand what is morally valuable for the flourishing of humanity. Further, some of our moral obligations are the result of the following of following the commands of God. If God commands to protect human life, then it is appropriate that people would seek to protect human life in the womb, no matter how disabled it may be. Christian theism offers the best explanation for moral knowledge, as God both reveals knowledge, impresses knowledge upon people, and innately has provided moral knowledge to humanity. This is a far better explanation than knowledge being built up over time which presupposes rationality and observation, which in itself presupposes value reasoning. Christian theism offers a much better explanation of moral transformation as God impresses on man a knowledge of moral goodness. Man in turn sees his moral depravity and seeks to do better. This explanation gives an objective and absolute explanation of moral transformation which is far better than the possibly relative explanation offered by naturalism based on human survival. Christian theism also provides the better explanation for moral rationality, as God is the one who gives humans the ability to, the ability to morally reason. This kind of rationality comes from a rational mind, whereas naturalism's explanation 
has no grounding or rationality. So the argument in Christianity has often been that uh, we can reason as rational minds, and we have this precondition to reason in observation. So like when we do science, you know, we don't just come to the table and observe, and that's our rationality. No, we have a we have some preconditions of of value built up that allow us to see what is a good experiment, what is good observation, and that comes from some kind of precondition of rationality. Christians would say that it comes from a rational mind, that mind being God's. Last paragraph. My explanations do not prove conclusively that Christian theism is true. They do not provide any kind of logical certainty that Christian theism is true. What my explanations show is that they better explain the moral properties we both know to be evident in the lives of people. To deny the existence of these properties would ultimately lead one down the path of moral skepticism. My explanations do not coerce belief in theism, but they do provide good reasons as to why I believe what I believe. My hope for you is that you will come to these beliefs as well. The truth is that many moral properties you and I evidently experience in daily life point to our need for a Savior. God gave our first parents all we would need in creation, which was good. They were in communion with God. But through a morally deceptive and rebellious act of sin, our first parents were separated from God. While Christianity is not a religion simply about morality, a gap did exist separating God and man where man could no longer bring himself back into the presence of God. This is someone like the moral gap we discussed. Thankfully, Jesus Christ is ultimately what closes this gap so that we can once again be in the presence of God. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our sinfulness and disobedience were put on Christ where he became our substitute to receive the wrath of God and took the penalty for our sin. He did what we could not do for ourselves. He traversed the moral gap we never could. Now Christians live in this exciting time where we see the kingdom of God coming into the world. We are not morally perfect yet, but one day we will be, and we are being continually made more righteous in the sight of God through the work of Christ and the Spirit of God. The difficulties you and I see when it comes to discussing moral properties no longer worry me because my God explains all we see. I hope and pray you will one day come to share this same faith. Sincerely, Ben Kelly. So there's my letter. That's what I wrote for my assignment in class. It gives you an idea of this abductive moral reasoning and how we can use that to actually really talk to people about their own worldview and <clears throat> excuse me, and how they're their worldview may not explain these moral properties that we all know and we engage in and we think about every day. So uh, we can engage in conversations on explanation of moral properties. Uh, again, I if you want to know more about the moral rationality argument, um, use C.S. Lewis's book on miracles, the third chapter. I can't remember if he talks about it more in subsequent chapters. But I, I think this is generally a great way to speak to non-Christians about your beliefs. A lot of people believe in morality. And so asking what is the best explanation for your different moral properties is a great way to engage people in conversation. So if you'd like to learn more about this kind of argument and how it works in a, in a larger scope, 
Um, the books I read for this class and how I came up with this argument, they're written by two guys named uh, David. I don't know if it's Baggett or Baggett. Uh, I, I think it's Baggett and Jerry Walls. Uh, they're called God and Cosmos, Moral Truth and Human Reasoning. And the second is called Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality. Uh, both books are not easy to read. Uh, they uh, they are difficult. I'm I'm pretty well read myself, but at the same time, I I struggled with uh, some of these. Uh, one of the things I would mention, and this isn't a deal, this isn't a deal breaker for me when I read books, uh, but if it is for you, they're pretty anti-Calvinist. I have a Calvinist bent in my own theology, and I kind of I kind of felt myself asking, why are you talking about this in these books? Um, so I, that kind of turned me off a little bit, but I still read them and I didn't think they were right about everything, but these are some very insightful books to a degree. They pretty much have written, they, they've written the book on this kind of argument. So, uh, you know, take it for what they will. They, I still believe they are good Christians. They are faithful, uh, servants to Christ. They want people to know the, the truthfulness of the gospel, but at the same time, they don't hold all the same theology I do. And you know what? Most theologians I read don't. So that's not a big deal. So if you've made it to this point in the podcast, thank you for listening. I hope and pray that you and I would continue in this journey where the Spirit is illuminating us uh, to the truthfulness of God that we see both in His revelation to us through His Word, that is Christ, and His and the Bible, and through you know His just general categories of nature. And so I, I pray that. That is something real for us that you would continue on this journey for me. And until next time, God bless you and I'll see you later.